My name is Ross Anderson. I'm one of our teaching pastors here at Alpine Church. And I don't know if you're new at Alpine, you know what we do is we have a rotating group of teachers. And I spend most of my time working on, you know, biblical training and, and thinking through what, what the Bible is going to say to us. And so I'm just really pleased to be with you guys today. Um, you'll see me every, what, six weeks, something like that. It just depends on, on uh, the sovereignty of God, I guess, and, and somebody making a schedule. So just gr- great to be with you guys. Love you guys. I'm excited about what God's doing at, at uh, Syracuse campus. And just such an encouragement to be here with you guys today. So today... We're talking in Mark chapter 12, looking in, in Mark chapter 12, starting in uh, verse 13. So if you follow along, it, you know, we want to encourage you to find it in your Bible, to look in your Bible app. We will have the verses up on the screen as well, so we want to make sure that you understand that we're, we're drawing from the Bible, from the Word of God today, and we want to understand what Jesus is saying to us. We're looking in the Gospel of Mark at the life of Jesus, the story of Jesus, his wisdom, his interactions, what kind of a person he is. And, and we, as we see the incredible work and the incredible words that he brings as a savior of the world. So the leaders of Judaism were always trying to get Jesus to say something incriminating. They were always trying to trap him in his words to discredit him or to take action against him because he'd say something that they could, they figured we'll just get him to like muff it with words, right? And so now that Jesus is in Jerusalem, as we see, he got here in in, in a couple chapters ago. He's in the rest of, of the Gospel of Mark takes place in Jerusalem. It's the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. And you see the opposition, the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders is peaking at this time. Because now he's on their home turf. And he's been saying some things, as we'll see, we saw last week, we'll see again next week. Well, he's saying some things that are like not flattering to these religious leaders and their stewardship of what God gave them to do. And so they're trying to, they're trying to get him to, to mess up. And so today, they're asking Jesus if Jews should pay taxes to Caesar. And we're going, to, um, we're going to unpack all of what that means. I mean, I, I know when I say the word taxes, you're going like, you feel it, right? Because taxes are a big part of life. And when we look at the text, we're going to, we might wish that Jesus said, said no to that question, right? No, don't worry about taxes. But he didn't. And so we're going we're gonna to figure out today. He, they asked him the tax question. And we're going to explore how Jesus answered that question as well as the implications that what, for what he said for us today, Caesar, Caesar's not our Lord anymore. We don't have to worry about paying taxes to Caesar. But what about the issues that are underlying the question that they raised? They're financial issues. They're raising some things I want us to consider today. So here's the question for the day. Do you take taxes more seriously than tithing? Now, I know tithing's a loaded word. We're going to define that later on and see what we mean by that or what we don't mean by that. But here's the underlying question. You know, this is the issue that, that the leaders brought to Jesus. Taxes, and Jesus turned it around and said, well, wait, there's more to it than that. It's a bigger question than that. So I saw an article recently called A Life of Tax. And in, it, in there, it gave all the information, all the data about how the average American taxpayer will spend 33% of your lifetime earnings on taxes. Now, that, that includes tax of every kind, income tax, sales tax, 
you know, property tax, uh, all the things, uh, registration of cars and stuff like that. So 33% of your lifetime earnings goes to some tax or another. And that adds up to, for American average, it adds up to $532,000 over the course of your life for the average person. Now, if you live in New Jersey, you're going to pay the most. For some reason, maybe they have more money there, maybe they have bigger taxes there, but the average New Jersey person is going to pay, that number will be $1.16 million. Now, if you live in Wyoming, that's the least. So how many are moving to Wyoming, right? It's only 336000 Utah, uh, yeah, they say the calculation is uh, 486000 per average taxpayer over the course of your lifetime. The U.S. government collected $4.9 trillion in taxes in 2022. <clears throat> but we're not the worst. Finland, Japan, and Denmark have the highest tax rates in the world. And then there are certain tax havens that exist like the Bahamas, Ireland, Switzerland. That's what I read anyway. I thought, oh, who wants to come with me to start an Alpine church in the Bahamas? There's a lot of reasons, right? So the question is, what does this have to do with Jesus in Jerusalem? <clears throat> what does this have to do with Jesus in Jerusalem? So the issue came up <clears throat> in this question that was brought by the religious leaders posed to Jesus. The question came from a group called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the legal ruling council of Judaism. They were authorized by the Roman Empire, who really ran the show. The Sanhedrin were the local leaders and included leaders from three major groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and what the Bible calls the scribes. And you see those words you know, throughout the, the New Testament as you read the Gospels. Now, but as I mentioned, their opposition to Jesus was now heating up. And so what we're going to see in the, next, in the next chapter is that each group is trying to put Jesus to the test. So the Sadducees challenged him with a question about the nature and the legitimacy of the idea of the resurrection. That comes in verses 18 through 27. That's just the next passage. The scribes challenged him on the question of scriptural interpretation. And that comes down in verses 28 through 44. But here in today's passage, it was the Pharisees who challenged him. In these verses. So let's take a look. Mark chapter 12, <clears throat> verses 13 through 15, where later it says the leaders, so they're talking about the Sanhedrin, they sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. So they're piling it on here, right? Out comes the, the stuff. We know how honest you are. You're impartial. You don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? Now the tax that they were referring to was a tax that was imposed by the Roman Empire on the people of Palestine, the Jewish people, called the Imperial Poll Tax. And it was instituted about 25 years before this conversation. It was instituted in 6 AD as the Romans began to take over more of that part of the world. And Mark 12, by the way, is probably written around, nobody knows exactly within precise timing, but it's probably written around AD 30. 
So that gives you an idea. It's 25 years ago, this tax has been on the books. The amount of the tax was one denarius. A denarius was a Roman coin, and it, and it equaled a laborer's average yearly pay. Oh, excuse me, daily pay. The average daily pay for a laborer. That was the amount of the tax once a year. The denarius was a silver coin, and stamped on the coin was the image and the title of Tiberius Caesar. Now, he was the Roman emperor from A.D. about 14 to 37, so we're right in the middle of his rule. Now, there were some faithful Jews who refused to pay the tax. So this was an issue in society at the time. Do we pay the tax or not? And there were some Jews who refused to pay the imperial poll tax. They were called zealots. In fact, the zealot movement rose, arose in, in Judaism as a result of the imposition of that tax in 86. And ultimately, the zealot movement got traction, and it led to the Roman Empire destroying, crushing Israel in AD 68 to 70, and the temple was destroyed then and so forth. All this is driven by this tax. So the zealots said, no, we're not going to pay it. The Pharisees disliked paying it, but they were not um, actively opposing it. Okay, so there's the other group mentioned are the supporters of King Herod. The Herodians had no objection to the tax. So it's a mixed group. If Jesus says yes or no, he's going to offend somebody, right? If he says yes, he's going to look sympathetic to Rome. And he's going to lose popular support among the, the, the mass of people of masses. And then if he says no, don't pay it, he's going to look like a zealot, like a revolutionary. And that would be the grounds for arresting him that the verse mentions there. So that's the tax question. That's the background of what's going on and the, the question that they asked him. So Jesus, did, his answer did not fall into one of those categories. Instead, he, he, he answers with this incredible wisdom and, and this, this depth of insight. Jesus saw through their hypocrisy. And he said, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin and I'll tell you. When they handed it to him, he asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well then, Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And give to God what belongs to God. And his reply completely amazed them. So, as always, Jesus got to the very heart of things. He got past, he, he went completely past the whole dilemma that they tried to set up and got to the very heart of things. He said, show me a Roman coin. Now, it's interesting that Jesus did not have a Roman coin, but the Pharisees did have a Roman coin. So they pull one out and show it to him. See, that's why he called their, their response, he says, hypocrisy. He saw through their hypocrisy. Because in showing the coin, and having possession of the coin, they already answered their own question. Just by having that coin, they acknowledge the authority of Caesar in that sphere of life. And so Jesus says, look, that's just, you're being hypocritical. You're trying to nail me on that, but look at where you're at. And so he asks a question in response to their question. He says, what's on the coin? Take a look. Whose image is on the coin? Whose title is on it? And the obvious answer is that that's Caesar. It's his image. It's his title. And so Jesus says, okay, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. In other words, he says, you've acknowledged that Caesar has authority in this area of, of financial taxation and so forth. Then, okay, then there, there's your answer right there. But he didn't stop at the question that they gave him. 
That's what I love about Jesus. He's always playing this, this deeper game than anybody else around him, and he's really getting, getting to the heart of it. He wants to expand the conversation to talk about something that, that is real in life, to put the, the uh, impetus back on them. So any duty, he says, by his second part, any duty that he says that they might have had to Caesar is surpassed by their duty to God. The Roman coin bears the image of the emperor. That shows that the Roman government has authority in that sphere. But when Jesus says, give to God what belongs to God, he's not just talking about money. He's not just talking about, oh, you have taxes to Caesar, then you have money you give to God. If the denarius bears the image of Caesar, he's reminding his Jewish audience, these leaders who understood what the Old Testament scriptures said, he's reminding them that human beings bear the image of God. Just give to God what belongs to God. He's not talking about a coin. He's talking about you. And so Genesis chapter 1 reminds us here, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The point is, he says, God has marked you as his own. And so it's not just about give Caesar the money you owe him, give God the money that he deserves. But even though Money is the surface issue here, and we're going to be talking about money today because this is the issue that got raised that Jesus answered. The deeper issue is we belong to God. Have you given yourself to him? Are you holding back? Have you given to God what, what, what you owe God, which is you? Are you still trying to retain control of what belongs to God, your creator? In other words, your life. And that's going to have implications for every area of life, not just money, but not excluding money either. So give to God what belongs to God, namely yourself. Now, with all that in mind, then, you know, I want to, it doesn't take very long to, to break open this passage. And so what I really want to do is to try to put it into the larger biblical picture and put it into um, the the, the New Testament context, because as we're looking at the, the subject that's brought up in Mark chapter 12, it, the coin is at the, at the heart of it. And so I want to think about some principles, some applications that flow out of the Pharisees' question that might apply to us today. And to do that, I, I'm going to go outside of Mark's gospel again to draw the bigger picture of what the Bible's talking about, about what it means to give God what belongs to God. And in particular, we'll talk today about the financial aspect of that. And what is that? How does that play out? If I'm giving to God myself, my life, my everything that I am, how does that play out in this particular sphere? And one of the places in the New Testament that has a lot to say about financial aspects, about giving in particular, are the books of First and Second Corinthians. So I'm going to go there and kind of camp there for a minute, and then we'll come back to what Jesus said um, to wrap it all up. So in First and Second Corinthians. The reason it's talking a lot about giving, a lot about money, is because Paul challenged the believers in the city of Corinth, as well as some other cities in Greece, uh, to give to a special need. So there was a famine in Palestine, and the famine affected many Christians who lived there, kind of like the, where Christianity was birthed in a way, really. And so, so Paul is asking the churches that he founded to raise money to help their brothers and sisters who are being affected by this economic downturn in Palestine. 
And so he's going to spend some time in those books talking about how they can do that and, and give us some principles and ideas about how to be involved in that. The fact is that he's writing this to the Christians in Corinth because they were dragging their feet. So Paul has to light a little bit of a fire under them. He says there's other churches in, in Greece, the Greek-speaking churches that Paul had planted. A lot of them were eager to participate. The Christians in Corinth were not quite so eager. And so Paul's going to speak to the question of their motives. And so when we started out, we asked this question. Are you more serious about taxes than about tithing? Now, of course, when we're talking about motives, there's two completely different motives at work in those two spheres, right? I mean, I understand the motive for giving to the government is I give to, the, to, to Caesar, so to speak, to avoid being punished. I don't want to have to go to jail or, or get, pay a big fine or, or something like that. It's, te- it's usually a pretty negative motive on my part for paying my taxes, Right? I mean, that's not my only motive because I want society to have good highways and I want society to have a justice system that works and, and to defend us against foreign threats and to maintain public safety and to protect citizens from exploitation and to have power to enforce the law and all those things take money and, and my taxes are, are, you know, not always efficiently providing for those services, right? So it's not my only motive, but I have to admit when push comes to shove, I do not give my taxes voluntarily. Okay, you with me? Now, hopefully our motive is different when we give to God. First, there's nobody to compel you, right? I'm not going to go to jail if I don't give to God an offering when I come to church. There's no strings attached. It's not like, okay, this is going to be for your benefit in some tangible, practical way. There's no settlement of accounts at the end of the year. When it comes to my giving. I'm not going to sit down with some ecclesiastical leader. And he's going to say well you owe more. Now some of us grew up in. In religious systems. Where there was a sense of compulsion. I did. And so maybe the church that you went to when you were a child. Or maybe there was a sense of compulsion. That you, that you picked up on. Or your parents were under. Where if you didn't pay what you were supposed to pay. You didn't receive all the benefits from that church. But that's, that's not how we do it at Alpine Church. Believe me, that's because that's not what the Bible teaches. And so, why would we give to God? What motivates us as Christ followers? What motivates us? Is, and we see that in Paul's response to the Corinthians. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, let each one do, he's talking about in the, in the sphere of giving, let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, For God loves a cheerful giver. So he says, this is the basic, this is the bottom line for the principle of giving in the New Testament. He says, whatever you invest in God's kingdom has got to come from your own heart. It can't be somebody telling you what to do. There's no compulsion involved. It's not what you don't want to, he says, I don't want you to give grudgingly. If you're going to give grudgingly, you might as well keep it. He says, you do what you purpose to do. You make the decision. It's not up to you to make it. And it's not going to be like taxes. It's not going to be compulsion or some threat that's attached to it. And so he says, no, what motivates us to give, to financially let go some of our money, he says, is it's a joy. He says, I want it to be cheerful. He says, I want you to have a joy that overflows from your relationship with God. And that ought to be the motivation, he says. And so I wanted to start with that because that's such a positive thing. 
Because I realize that this can be a real sensitive issue to even talk about this in church. Like how many of you, if you knew I was going to talk about money, you would have found something else to do this morning, right? I wish I could have found something else to do this morning, right? It's a sensitive issue because many religious leaders are all about the money. You don't have to look far in our society to see that guy on television, that guy who's got, you know, the three big houses and who just bought the airplane, that, that religious guy, that, that some of them are all about the money. That taints everything in our religious culture. And there are many churches that are trying to control and manipulate and pressure you and are going you know, to try to do a motivation that's different from the one that we read in 2 Corinthians 9. So I realize it's a sensitive issue in our culture today. Now, now I want to say we're not interested in those kind of motivations at Alpine Church. Okay? But... We're not going to dance around the money issue either. We want to explore it honestly and openly and fairly because Jesus talked about money all the time. The Bible talks about money a lot. And so when we claim at Alpine Church, we claim that we believe the Bible and we claim that we want to follow what it says, it would be hypocritical for us to avoid this question. If Jesus talked about it a lot, and, but we're not going to talk about it, because we don't want somebody to be offended or whatever. That would be hypocrisy on our part. And so this is an important matter. But I want you to understand the framework that I'm coming from when I address this is that I believe that what you give is between you and God. It's not between you and a church. Okay. There's only one person at Alpine Church who knows what you give. If you give, only one person at Alpine Church who knows what you give that's the person who keeps records for tax purposes. If you don't want that person to know, you could give in cash or whatever you want to do. You know, but, but I don't know what anybody gives. I don't want to know. None of our pastoral team. We don't, we don't, this is not relevant to us. But my point is that God, see, God loves it when you give back to him joyfully and gratefully since everything that we have comes from him in the first place. So that's the underlying thing. I want to lay that foundation clearly when we talk about you know, money issues or give to God what belongs to God. We want to say that that's really why. That's why we do it. That's the framework that I'm coming from, that we're coming from today. Now what about that, tax, that, that tithing thing? Because we framed the original question as taxes versus tithing. Now we framed that on purpose um, to get your attention really because I, I want to talk to you about what the Bible says about tithing. Because in ancient Israel, the tithing was a thing, and it was about, basically, the giving was about two or three things. Um, number one, it provided for the poor. Number two, the tithes that people gave, uh, the, the offerings that it provided for the, for the temple, and the maintenance, and uh, the direction and maintenance of the temple. And then number three, it, it supplied the physical needs the income, so to speak, of priests and Levites who served the nation as representatives of God who kind of served in the temple and all the rest. Now, in the Old Testament, doesn't just speak about a tithe, but it actually talks about a series of tithes. There were like three tithes in the Old Testament that had these different purposes. And so when you add up those varying tithes, they weren't all every year, like the tithe, the tithe for the poor was like every uh, third year. When you add them all up, then it did not add up to 10% of the income of the Israelite. 
it added up to at least 20% and maybe closer to 30%. So that's really what the tithe was in the Old Testament. Now, that was for Israelites. What about Christians today? Do we need to tithe? And the answer, I, I say no. I don't think the Bible, the New Testament teaches the principle of tithing. Now, I'm going to qualify that in a minute. Because the, but the law of Moses is what required God's people to tithe. They were under the law of Moses. Christians today are not under the Mosaic law. Jesus came to fulfill the Mosaic law. That's why we don't do animal sacrifices and so forth. But now, as Christians part of a new covenant relationship with God that was introduced by Jesus... The Bible, the New Testament, still talks about financial giving. It still creates an expectation of that for Christians. And that's still about supporting people who serve in the local church or who serve as missionaries around the world, so people who are representing God. It's still about helping the poor. So Alpine, we have Alpine Cares, we have benevolence funds and so forth. And it's still about doing some things with buildings. So you guys are working on a building. At Syracuse. By the way, can I just say, I pulled up to the parking lot today, this morning, and I saw that all the Halloween stuff. I thought, I cannot, cannot wait. This time next year, we will not have Halloween garbage, you know, kind of around the Alpine Church building. We'll have some other things. And so that's part of what, the, part of, part of what our giving is all about. It's, it's advancing the kingdom of God in these different ways. But how that giving works now in the New Covenant, in the New Testament... It works in a different way. There's no set amount. There's no set percentage that's required by God. And so what I want to do with the time that we have, I want to pose three questions to explain how it does work now. Now that we're not Israelites under the law of Moses, and, and the law of Moses gave all kinds of specific instructions about how to do the tithe and how to collect it and how to use it and so forth. Now that we're not under there, I want to ask three questions that are going to elaborate on how it does work now for us today. And I'm going to base it on what the Bible teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, first and 2 Corinthians, as I mentioned. And then I'll close by coming back to something else that Jesus said that's really pivotal, I think, at this point. So here's the three questions that are going to play this out. The first question is, are we giving regularly? Regular means, is it planned and is it consistent? Okay, um, Sally and I, we give ours once a month. And we have a payment that comes to Alpine Church uh, through our, from our bank through, uh, on the 11th of every month. Okay, so that's, we just set that up and it's regular. Because Paul said to the Corinthians, on the first day of each week, you should put aside a portion of the money you have earned. Don't wait till I get there and then try to collect it all at once. So Paul was coming in person to receive that offering. And he said, you know, for the people in Palestine who were suffering from the famine. He says, wait, don't try to collect it once I get there. That's going to be challenging to do that. He said, set some aside on a regular basis. And that's going to make it affordable. Now, more than that, though, setting aside on a regular basis, whether it's once a week or once a month or whatever it is for you, what that does is that that has the effect of keeping our hearts connected to God. Because giving is not just a financial transaction between us and God. Giving is an act of worship. Giving is a way of saying, God, you are worth more to me than money. It's the way of saying, God, I'm trusting you to supply all of my needs. 
God, I'm, I'm excited and encouraged. I'm grateful to you for providing for me what you have provided for me. So all those things play into giving as an act of worship. And so when you give regularly, then it enhances your worship because it reminds you of God's care and God's provision for you again and again and again. So we give, first of all, to express our heart to God. That's what we give regularly. And by the way, um, Sally and I give to Alpine Church first because Alpine's our faith family. It's where God has planted us right now. Um, but our giving to God's kingdom is not limited to Alpine Church. Um, where there's ministries and there's missionaries that we, and I think that's a, I think that'd be healthy for any of you to consider. If I'm only giving to Alpine Church, maybe there's something that God wants to do beyond, you know, my relationship here with my family. This is my family, but but maybe there's some. We we know people. We have individual relationships with people that that we want to be supportive of them. We're 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 supportive of them in prayer and in our attitude and our heart for them. We want to see them succeed, but that we said, okay, we're going to back that up financially. And so it doesn't just have to be your home church. And I want to bring this up <clears throat> to say that that's okay because some of you are new to all this. You're new to the whole giving thing or you're at least new to this biblical perspective on it. And maybe you're coming out of a religious setting where matters of finances were, were practiced in a very heavy-handed way or in a very manipulative way. I want to help you change your mentality about giving today. I don't, I don't want that to be the model that is driving what the choices that you make. Because giving is not about tithing to a church. And I say that again. Giving is not about tithing to a church. But it's your response to God's goodness. So that's why I could say, you know, I don't even care if you give to Alpine Church. I'm probably going to get, like, reprimanded for saying that. I don't know. No, no. No, I'm just kidding. No, because seriously, I, I don't really care. I, I want you to give to God. That's the bottom line. I'll let God sort it all out. Alpine Church, does, I mean, God's going to provide for us as a church one way or the other. We don't have to twist arms. We can trust God to do that. So, I, so even if you don't give to Alpine Church, here's my point is that if you're from a background and a, an experience where you don't trust church, the institutional church, you don't trust church yet, then just give to God in some other way. And I want you to give because you're joyful about what God has given to you and what God has done in your life. I don't want you to give because there's some onus of expectation, even if that was the way it was handled in the past. And if that's not how we handle it at Alpine Church, but maybe that's a shadow that, that falls over your religious experience that you have to kind of untangle yourself from. And... If Alpine Church does become your church home at some point, then I would encourage you to start giving to God through Alpine Church when you've learned that you can trust us. Okay, does that make sense what I'm saying? Because I know people are coming from so many different experiences in American culture and religious culture with this whole idea of giving. So that's the first question. Are we giving regularly? The second question in is are we giving proportionally? Proportionately. A proportion, that's just simply a, a percentage, right? I, there's not like a, like a two-syllable word that you could say that with. It's simply a percentage. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, give in proportion to what you have. Give in proportion to what you have. Now, note that Paul does not say what that proportion ought to be. 
A tithe technically is a proportion, 10%, or if you have the Old Testament standard, it's more than 10%, right? And so it's, that's an example of proportionate giving. But we already said the tithe is not required for Christ followers. So while it's no longer about the tithe per se, Paul says it's still about a proportion. It's still about you give in keeping with commensurate to the way that God has given to you. And so we see so far the New Testament teaches us what? To give cheerfully, to give regularly, to give in proportion to what God has given to us. But never makes a dollar amount, never ties a dollar amount to that, never ties a percentage to that. He said it's up to you to decide what your response to God really is. And honestly, I know for people who have a lot of money, a tithe is cheap. A tithe is the easy way out. You can give 10% and still have way more than you need to live on. And for some of you, a tithe is incredibly uh, a steep hill to climb. And, and you can give 1% and, it, and, it's still, you're, and you're struggling week in and week out to make ends meet and waiting for God to provide. So I learned this about this. After my first wife died a few years ago, um, I was single for a while and I was living pretty simply. You know, I'd uh, moved into a small place. My expenses were, were minimal. Um, and so because of the circumstances I was in, I was able to give way, way more than I had ever given in the past. I was able to give, like, I don't know, I don't want to put a number on it, but it was a way more than any, anything I had ever been able to give in the past. It was for a brief period of time in my life. It's not the case now. You know, life has, like, other things going on, right? And so when, as, Sally, as Sally and I approach uh, retirement, then we're going to reevaluate what those actual amounts are because our income, will be, our income structure will be different. And honestly, at times I get nervous about, you know, what the future holds and, and, and how we're going to be able to, to honor God in those ways. But we're going to trust God to lead, to lead and to, to follow through and he'll provide. And we'll always give proportionately to what God provides, no matter what the numbers are, no matter what the life situation is. Now, of course, that takes intentionality, right? Because giving is more than like, like what's in my pocket when I happen to pass the offering box, when I go buy the offering. It's not like, oh, hey, well, I got a couple bucks in here. No, it takes intentionality. And that's spoken to there in 2 Corinthians 8. Paul says to these, these Christians, since you excel in so many ways, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. And he goes on, he names a lot of ways the Christians were doing really well. He says, man, you've got a lot of faith, you've got knowledge. He says, you have some gifted speakers in your churches. You're really super enthusiastic about Jesus. All those things are listed there. And he says, oh, wouldn't it be awesome if your giving was in the same category? And in the rest of chapter 8 and chapter 9, he, tell, he tells us how do we excel in giving. And it, and it involves intentionality. So there's our first two questions. Here's the third one. Are we giving sacrificially? This might be the biggest test for most of us. We don't necessarily like any kind of discomfort or risk. It was a big test for the Corinthians. just kind of holding them back. And so Paul gave them an example of another church some other churches that were north of them in a different part of Greece. In, in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 and 2, he says, Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. But they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. 
You see, there's a connection. You see that the joy leads to the generosity. Right? But Macedonia was north of Corinth. It was uh, part of Greece. The economy there was not good. We don't know really why, but many of the Christians there were very poor. And so Paul says, yet they, because of their joy, they chose to give generosity, generously. And he says what drove their choice was their inner attitude, their inner uh, dimension of what was going on inside. It wasn't exterior. It wasn't what was going on outside. And then he goes on to talk about it next. In verse 3, he says, For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. Now, I think that's so powerful to see that they gave more than they could afford. Now, I know in our culture what that might sound like. It might sound like that somebody was manipulating them. But listen, Paul says it wasn't some church. It wasn't some religious leader who was twisting their arm to like go into debt in order to give them more money. I know a guy, it made me think of this guy I know. Um, his, re- his religious leaders sat him down and told him to take, he needed to take out a second mortgage on his house in order to fulfill his commitment to his tithing. But in Macedonia, Paul says nobody forced them. Nobody manipulated them. They wanted to give this collection. It's almost like you can hear Paul saying, no, no, it's okay. You don't have to give anything. But they begged him. They said, no, we really want to give. Take our money. Because they wanted to share in the needs of the believers in Jerusalem. Their heart was right. And so to summarize, we see we give to God regularly, proportionally, sacrificially, not under compulsion or coercion or manipulation, but out of a grateful heart that overflows with joy. And because, back to what Jesus said, we ultimately belong to God. His image is stamped on us. And so, in the beginning we asked you, take taxes more seriously than tithing. I want to close by framing that question a little more broadly because we said, well, tithing isn't really the, the thing. We call it giving, whatever. We'll call it uh, generosity, whatever. And we take taxes more seriously than, it, than most things in life because, you know, we're forced to. But I want to frame it in, in a way that's going to maybe get home to us a little bit more. And so fill in the blank. Do you take blank? Do you take what more seriously than giving to God? Now, some of us are... By nature, we're more spenders. Some of us are more savers. So I'm going I'm to ask the spenders first. Do you take your like wardrobe more seriously than you're giving to God? Do you take your hobbies more seriously than you're giving? Do you take your sports more seriously? Do you take your vacations more seriously than you take to giving, giving to God? Do you take having a new car more seriously or a new house more seriously than what you give to God? I don't want to leave out the savers either, so let me ask you guys, do you take what's in your bank account more seriously than what you give to God? Do you take your investment portfolio or your retirement accounts more seriously than what you give to God? Now, none of those things are necessarily bad. They're all good things. You should take care of your your retirement account. But the question we're asking is, what is the ultimate affection of your heart? 
What does your heart ultimately love the most? So I want to wrap up by going back to what Jesus said about money. Not in Mark chapter 12 this time, but in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 6, verse 19 through 21, Jesus says, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal But store up your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. So I want to come back to Jesus because he's really the final word, right? He's the one that we're all about. And he says there's a link between your money and your heart. We know that, don't we, in practice? He says our hearts get revealed by what we spend. That's why Jesus said, give to God what belongs to God. And he didn't mean just our money, he meant our heart. So when you allow God to take over management of your life, then you're going to fall in love with him. And you're going to start to love what he loves. And he'll change your heart. And then all the spending decisions will follow suit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your care and your provision for each one of us. And every one of us can think of times when when we've trusted you and you provided. Every one of us, God, we can think of times when you've given to us abundantly more than we even asked for or even needed or deserved. And so we just want to ask you, God, to work in our hearts today that we, we belong to you. We have the stamp of your image is on us. We want to give to God what belongs to God. I'm going to give you myself today. And I know that that's going to have implications. I know it's going to change how I spend my time and what I watch, what I think about, and who, how I relate to other people. It's going to ha- affect you know, how, I, how I go about doing my job. It's going to have implications for the whole financial side of my life. So thank you, God, that you've given us the privilege of being involved in what you're doing in the world. You've given us the privilege of being involved financially in what your kingdom is accomplishing in Utah. So we want to be in step with you. Not because somebody beat us over the head. Not because somebody twisted our arm. But simply because of the overflow of our gratitude and our joy to you for what you've done. So we ask you to work in us, knowing your plans are good. You're only going to take us in a good place. You're going to provide everything we need. We can't, we can't give, outgive you, God. We, we know that's true because you're so good and so generous to us. You help us figure it out in our own life, in our own particular circumstances. Father, in our own budgetary needs, in our own financial environment that we're in with the, with the challenges that each one of us has and with the opportunity that each one of us has. We trust you to, to help us figure it out when we're willing to follow. And so God, thank you for all that you've given, all that you've done, your greatest gift, of course, your son Jesus, who gave infinitely for us. And we trust you to lead and surrender that to you today in Jesus' name for his honor and glory, amen.